to Estradile Illusions. We are back with more Pride coverage, more coverage of a festival that was also happening uh, right down the street, literally right down the street from Sundance. We had the Slamdance Film Festival at the same time. And if you follow my website, my reviews are reviewed. A lot of their slate, and I'm very excited to have both the director and the star of one of my favorite documentaries from Slam Dance, Queen of the Capital. We have Josh Davidsberg and Muffy Blake Stevens here to talk with us about the film. Um, Muffy, well, I want you both to tell us a little about yourself. Uh, Muffy, do you want to go first? Sure. Thanks for having us, Ian. Um, yeah, uh, I've lived in Washington, D.C. now for going on 15 years. Um, Prior to that, I lived in central Missouri uh, for about, I guess, including the college, a little over 15 years as well. And then uh, before that was in northern Missouri, where I was born and raised. Um, done drag for going on, I guess, 20-ish years with a, about a four-off, four years period off. Um, and by day, I work as a supervisor specializing in unemployment insurance for the United States Department of Labor. And Josh? Hi, Ian. I am Josh Davidsberg. I am a senior lecturer at the University of Maryland, and I'm a documentary filmmaker. And uh, formerly, I worked in television news, and I always wanted to do documentaries. And I got this great opportunity when I met Muffy that I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, and I did my first documentary, and you got to see it at Slamdance. So here we are. So before we dive into Queen of the Capitol, because Muffy lives in Washington and there was some major, major news this week uh, centered around LGBTQ equality, uh, workplace discrimination and LGBTQ equality. Uh, We did an episode on Monday all about that, a breaking news episode. But uh, Muffy, I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, what this what this means to you personally as somebody who's uh, been in the community for so long and just your perspective on uh, the news and how the world's changed. As someone who works in the workforce system, particularly um, specializing in unemployment insurance, um, but then working more broadly in all things workforce for people to be able to get the training and jobs that they need to have. I think this is a major, major step forward. Um, The, uh, the ability to have the Supreme Court bring uh, LGBTQ individuals into Title VII coverage is uh, solves, well, not all of the problems, because we really need to get these put into statute so we're not relying on case law. Um, but this resolves a lot of the outstanding rights, though there are still more. I want to make sure we don't make don't think that because of this case that we've achieved full equality full equality will require it to go into statute but we still don't have things like adoption rights that are still in we don't have case law giving us that for um so we need to make sure that there still are additional rights that need covered but over the 15 years that i've lived in dc um the lgbtq movement has made such great strides the first of the three major things i would identify was to um, be able to witness the end of the ban on gays and lesbians uh, serving in the military. Um, I'm a part of the Arlington Gay and Lesbian Alliance and helped to work locally on that issue as well. Um, And then in June of 2019, to be able to witness the Supreme Court 
uh, with the uh, marriage amend, uh, marriage decision. Um, that was uh, the, uh, also a very much key mark um, decision. And to then now have this with Title VII. Uh, so those are three major things that, quite frankly, when I moved to Washington, D.C. in August of 2006, I never thought that I would see probably any of those in my lifetime. And to now see all three of those to have moved in the last 15 years is just, um, it's mind-boggling and to some degree as someone who was born in a, in a small community with a Baptist church um, being central to my life. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I'm only uh, 28, so I haven't, haven't uh, been around all that long to, to see a lot of the stuff that's uh, gone on in the eighties or the earlier, uh, the Stonewall riots, all, all the monumental moments of LGBTQ history that documentaries like Queen of the Capitol help, help kind of, uh, in a way preserve and, uh, for, for, for people in the future, but, but to be able to have, uh, be able to celebrate this news and just kind of also the the positive mainstream re- reaction to it has has been really uplifting. Even uh, that certain character Absolutely. in the White House wasn't wasn't particularly uh, he was fairly uncharacteristically quiet about it, which I was surprised. I was surprised that he wasn't on Twitter trying to fire Neil Gorsuch. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I actually went uh, in June of 2019. I went down to the White House that night when they and that night they lit up the White House um, in rainbow colors and a picture that uh, continues out there in lots of places. I had my own that I took, and um, once I was elected empress, um, I used that photograph when you travel across the circuit um, and visit other um, realms. It's tradition that the visiting monarchs will bring gifts to the. Uh, monarchs of the realm that you're visiting, and I actually utilize what I used throughout the tenure of my reign um, was that photograph of that night on in June of 2019 of uh, 2019 of the White House being lit up in rainbow colors um, as a framed piece of art that I handed out. So, um, and like you said, history is so important. I mean, and we did as a community in the 80s and early 90s, the AIDS epidemic wiped out an entire generation of uh, not only LGBT individuals, but also um, so much of the drag community was just decimated. And we cover some of that in the film. Yeah, so the film uh, was covers a, a, a period that, that takes place in uh, around, around 2014. Is that right, Josh? Right. We started filming September 2014 and went through... Uh, so the following September, um, it was from a coronation to a coronation, basically. So can for uh, our audience, can you provide just like a, a general overview of, uh, of, of the film? And uh, it, it follows such a great, uh, very intimate uh, uh, quest of Muffy to become the empress of the uh, Imperial Court of Washington. And uh, can you talk, sure. talk a little bit about the... Yeah, well, so Muffy is a government bureaucrat by day, a drag queen who uses drag to raise money for charity by night. So um, we followed Muffy for a full year as a member of the Imperial Court of Washington, D.C., which is an amazing group. One of the reasons I wanted to do the documentary was the amazing work that they do in the community. Um, and the Imperial Court is a group that 
um, uses drag as a way to raise money for charity. And they do it with this pomp and circumstance. And it's really like nothing I've ever seen before. It's an amazing experience um, if anybody gets the chance to go to a court event. Um, and so we followed Muffy for a full year. Uh, in the beginning, she couldn't tell us that she was going to run for empress. She said she had a committee looking at running for empress. So um, we followed her as she kind of was deciding whether or not to run for empress. And then eventually... Uh, applied and started campaigning and then there was a big election. Um, but we also wanted to, you know, we talked a little bit about history. We wanted to make sure that we uh, kind of interwove the history of drag in DC into our documentary because uh, it just seemed like such an interesting past given, given the capital uh, of our country. Um, so the history was another, in, uh, very important part that we wanted to get into our, our documentary as well. I love that you, well, the, the DC setting just works, works so perfectly for the, um, just the, the polit- it's a, it's a, I'm a huge fan of, uh, political documentaries too. And there, there really are the politics. It's obviously not like, uh, something out of house of cards, but, right. um, with the Machiavellian uh, tactics, but there is a, there is a political nature and uh, the, it's kind Oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, and I loved the dichotomy, you know, uh, DC is so gray and um, you know, it's kind of like foggy and um, it just kind of has like this government bureaucratic feeling. And then you've got drag, which is this explosion of color um, one of my favorite parts, we got to follow Daniel to uh, his day job, which is the Department of Labor. And um, and I love how it's kind of, you know, flickering green office lights and kind of like a regular bureaucratic building and, and the camera pans over. And then there's this explosion of drag from uh, one of the cubicles. And that, that kind of was, was the feeling that we were, we were trying to go for with the documentary. On, on a sort of broader scale, do you um, is it is it common for uh, realms or or uh, drag drag communities outside of DC to hold these elaborate uh, elections? Uh, yeah, the, one of the things that's I think that's a somewhere common thread that ties all seventy of the imperial courts together. Um, we have imperial courts. There's seventy total. They, uh, we have one court in Mexico, uh, and then the remaining 69 courts are in cities all across uh, the United States and Canada. They're in coast to coast uh, in both Canada and the United States. Uh, and every one of those um, has as its landmark event each year their coronation gala. Um, the, some of them, like Kentucky, for instance, the one in D.C., ours is called the Gala of the Americas. It's very Washington, D.C.-centric in its theme. Um, the uh, one in Kentucky is called the Bourbon Ball. The <laughs> one in San Diego um, has a military theme um, because of all of the military bases there in San Diego. And so you have some that have you know, regional themes based on that, and then others have themes based upon the individual reigns. When I reigned in D.C., Rather than it being a red, white, and blue DC kind of a theme, I was allowed to pick the the theme for the, the ball, and so mine was an evening on the River Nile because Egyptian uh, stuff had been throughout my reign a common thread. 
Um, but every realm across the country and in North America and Mexico do hold these what we call state events. And then um, they'll also, every realm also has what we call investitures, and that's where uh, the reigning monarchs will invest the membership with their titles for the year. And that's typically also when courts will hand out the money that they raised in the prior year. And then we also, um, in each of the courts, have some kind of an election system that varies from court to court um, in D.C., Anyone who lives in the realm, whether you're a member of the court or not, can vote um, for the monarchs. Some, you have to be a member of the court to vote. Um, So that's done differently depending upon where you are. But those three central kind of aspects are central to every um, imperial court chapter across the country. That's It's just so fascinating to hear you talk about that in the sense that you know, there's this all this infrastructure and um, all, all this sort of planning and the thought that goes into it. And I, I, I've been thinking about how, with with your particular court being in D.C., the uh, sort of how much um, your uh, community has influenced drag in D.C. And then likewise, how much D.C. is kind of rubbed off on on um, you as a result. It's kind of a it, it's such an interesting dynamic to think about. Yeah, we, and when you look at the court system, um, you know, one of the I think one of the interesting things and neat things about the D.C. Uh, court presence is of the three nations in North America that were that the court is in, um, the United States is the only one of those three countries that has a court chapter in its capital city. Um, there's um, there's been a desire and some work towards getting one in Ottawa, Canada. Um, they have one not far away in Toronto. I've actually visited that court before. Um, but it's you know, one of those things. Every individual court is a sovereign court, does things on their own way. But we truly are that royal oak tree that um, Mama Jose Saria planted that, you know, that original seed 55 years ago this past February in San Francisco that has grown into this royal oak that where everyone – The commonality across them, aside from certain common events, the real commonality truly is the service to the community and raising money for nonprofits in those areas. And the court is just one of the organizations that we looked at. We also uh, looked at the academy, which is has been in D.C. a lot longer, Um, and that we were able to look at the academy, and that's how we were kind of able to weave the the history of Dragon D.C. into it. And Muffy, you could probably talk a little a little more about Mame sure. and and the impact that Mame had on drag in DC. Yeah, the Mame actually is one of, is my drag grandmother, um, Mame Dennis, and she was um, not the founder, but one of the um, early members of the Academy of Washington um, that was founded actually before the Imperial Court system was founded in San Francisco. Um, it has since closed. Um, up until the time that it closed, it was the oldest continuously operating LGBTQ organization in the United States. Um, but that organization was largely, they had house parties. DC was a city of house parties and they would get together and hang out with folks similar to themselves, have a good time, put on a gown, put on their tiaras. There was all kinds of titles that you could compete for. I was a member of the Academy as well. Um, I had, um, was Miss uh, Gay USA uh, in the Academy in 2012. 
Um, prior to that, I was the uh, I won the title of Miss Gay Zodiac in D.C. Um, so there was lots of those kind of things. And Maine Dennis was central to that organization. But lots of the individuals that are performers to this day either were members or have ties to individuals who were members of the Academy. And the in 2013 is when Mama Jose passed away at the last um, coronation that um, Mame Dennis attended, which I believe was 2012. Um, you had, uh, I believe it was Mame Dennis setting with Frank Kameny and um, Mama Jose, the three of them. Um, and of course, we lost Frank Kameny not long after as well, where um, they used Mame joked afterwards how it was we three Nelly Queens. Um, and all of them, each in their own right, had such a large impact on the advancement of LGBTQ equality in this country. And to have them there together that evening, um, being able to share stories. Um, I wasn't able to be present that evening, but I've been able to hear the stories of those who were at that table. Um, and it, I really, that's one of the things I wish I would have been that, there that night. So I think one of the things that the documentary does uh, ex- extremely well is it, it really drives home the the intimacy of of your group, your community, what you've just been th- describing. This you know for so many LGBTQ uh, people, especially LGBTQ youth, um, growing up in, in in places similar to you in in places like Missouri would. Uh, Loneliness is a really serious problem, and um, to to be able to 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 find community and uh, you know f- you know talk about drag family, but it really is it, it is it a really family. Is family. Think- one of one of my favorite lines is when um, Muffy says it was either Muffy or Shelby says, um, "If we didn't do drag anymore, uh, we'd we'd still be." be and you say friends and then Shelby says no we'd be family that was one of my favorite lines from the documentary and that just kind of kind of encapsul- encapsulates it I mean it 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 was a it is a family it and is a family yeah and that really drew me to the documentary as well because um the amount that you all kind of take care of each other and are there for each other if one of us there had- for yeah, if if one of us is down in financial issues or has health issues, you know, it it's our drag chosen family that many times is there to get us through it. Um, and you know, I know, Lord, it certainly as it's highlighted in the film, there was a period during my uh, during my reign where actually we had went out and um, there we're at a bar. Uh, I was looking up at the television. Last thing I remember is being asked what I wanted to drink. And I went into a series of what was apparently seven or eight seizures that weekend. Um, and Shelby's the one who dropped her life uh, for basically two and a half days straight. Um, so, I mean, my family's 900 miles away. Um, but I'm blessed to have just as much of a family in my drag family here in D.C., and that's so much is the case for so many in the drag community and for those not in drag, but also in other parts of the LGBTQ um, alphabet, I'll call it just um, that for individuals who have been abandoned by their biological families, it's their chosen families that get them through. 
Um, my chosen ha- family happens to be predominantly a drag uh, family, um, but um, it's not certainly entirely. But chosen family is just as important as biological family, sometimes more important. And uh, the common line, I think, that wove, weaves through all of this is it's truly about community. And you can't spell the word community without the word unity. In it. It's not called communify. It's community. Mm-hmm. And we got to stick together and remember that, that the differences that we have are our strengths. As we recognize our differences as being our strengths, as being that commonality that enables us to um, lift each other up um, and be there for each other when time, hard times fall, that's just so critical. There's The line that I use to close on every show during my reign was – please go out and spread a little bit of laughter, love, and light. Um, and there's far too much hatred, darkness, and divisiveness out there. And you never know how such a small thing like saying, hello, hope you're having, hope you're doing well, even just a smile can be what's the difference between someone uh, possibly committing suicide that evening um, or being there tomorrow with us. So um, words mean the words so mu- mean so much. And things like laughter, love, and light, and community, I think, are four of the most important words that we can always hold to. And as Shelby says, she doesn't have to love you. She chooses to love you. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's a very, uh, it's a very touching uh, part of the film. Uh, to take a few, I want to ask a, a, a couple sort of or, origin-related questions. But uh, first, as it relates to the film, Josh, sure. uh, do you want to talk about what, uh, drew you to um, the the world of drag. Sure. And, uh... Yeah, I'd love to. So um, I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Maryland, the Philip Merrill College of Journalism. And during the summer, I taught a class of master's students an intro to multimedia. And for the end of the semester, the summer semester, they had to go out and do kind of a, a mini documentary, a documentary short. And one of my students, uh, one of the 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 characteristics of the short is they have to find someone who has an interesting hobby or is just like a really interesting person. So one of my students went to pride and she saw Muffy and saw Muffy's hair from like four blocks away and knew I wanted to do a story on Muffy and kind of marched up to Muffy and said, asked her if she could do a story on her. And it kind of evolved into uh, uh, the documentary short from, from my class And during class one day, I was talking to my students and they asked me, besides teaching, what were my goals in life? What did I want to do? And I said, I've always wanted to do a documentary. And Brandy said, well, why don't we do one on Muffy? And she set up uh, an interview with Muffy and we sat down. We went went to uh, a bar on campus, sat down with Muffy and talked for a while. And after talking to Muffy and Muffy told me about the court and the academy and all the amazing things that they do for the community – I knew this was the documentary that I wanted to make. And so we, we started filming and, uh, you know, that was September, 2014. And here we are, we're getting released on Alamo draft house, which is amazing. And for you, Muffy, how was, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I said, it's been an amazing road. What was, what was that like? Just so you were, you were, you're at pride and, um, you were approached and, I mean, drag has kind of exploded in the American mainstream, but this was still, you know, a, a, a few years ago. And to, uh, d- did you think when uh, 
when when they first started that that this was all gonna uh, evolve into something that was at uh, Slam Dance, which is a pretty big deal. Um, I had no clue this was going to evolve into Slam Dance. Um, as I've said before at several of the festivals, um, when this first started. Yes, I knew I was being approached about a movie, but I really didn't think there'd really ever be an actual movie in the end. Um, when I first saw the first rough cut, I was like, oh my gosh, what did I say when this was recorded? Um, and you know, it was amazing how Josh and his team were able to weave this incredible storyline. But I was literally that day, and I'm someone who comes from a political background, so in politics, you're taught to never never see anyone as a stranger they're always a potential voter uh so when brandy <laughs> came up to me i was like okay sure yeah and then when she called me back a few days later and wanted to take it and said that rather than being the story for it to instead be the um documentary short that she had to produce i was like okay sure what you know okay i'll i'll call the bar and get permission for you to come in and she came out to the bar came to my office she did a great job with that and when the pr- proposal came to me about doing the film, quite frankly, I was just a drag queen being offered to have a free paparazzi for a year. <laughs> <laughs> and the bonus is now looking back at it um, five years later is we have an award-winning documentary that's going to be released on demand this Saturday on Alamo Draft House On Demand. So I never would have dreamed that I would have been doing the film circuit and going, seeing the amazing people that I met. Uh, It's kind of like when you reign as Empress, the people that year that are also your fellow Empresses, you make bonds with some of those folks that last forever. And some of the people that I've met at the various film festivals, and then certainly with Josh and his team um, and his entire family, actually, um, those are connections that, I'll have for the rest of my life and will cherish them for the rest of my life. My mom is the first one to like all of Muffy's photos on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so Muffy, uh, to, to follow up with a, with an origin question, what, um, what got you interested in drag and to, to sort of follow that through to your involvement for all these years in, in drag communities and whatnot? The first time was on a bet from the guy that I was dating back in college. Um, and he bet me $500 that I wouldn't enter this contest. And I said, give the money to an individual third party so I can guarantee that I get the money afterwards. Um, didn't, uh, uh, did that that evening, got my $500 though. I spent about 300 and some that night doing it. Um, and then didn't do drag immediately regularly after that. But it was something that there was always an itch there to do it anyway. So there didn't need to be much of a bet to cause me to go there. And it's kind of like riding a bicycle. Once you do it, you're off and running. And um, I saw that I've been really, truly blessed professionally to never have to need um, extra income on the side, really. I, I've. I've been extremely fortunate, both when I was a state employee and a political appointee, and then as a federal bureaucrat in the civil service now. Um, and in all of those periods, I realized back in Missouri that I could utilize drag as a way to get attention and then raise money. 
And so back there, I was the president of the Mid-Missouri LGBT Coalition, um, which was a group that was for eight entire counties. Um, come out here, and if there's two or more gays or lesbians that do it, there's a group just for them. Out there, there was eight entire counties served by one LGBTQ group. And um, as a result, I was uh, one of the leaders of the Pride Festival in the middle of uh, Missouri. And my last year there was when the U.S. Senate tried to put it, pass an, a pass a uh, amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It failed, um, but to ban gay marriage. And my two Republican senators were front and center of the middle of it. And so I utilized that as our way to promote our local pride festival. And I did it while I was in drag. And so we, our theme that year was pride, not prejudice. And I just wow, the praise. Um, come out and join us for pride, not prejudice at the park this year. And all you got to bring is half of it because you just bring the pride. The senators have already provided the prejudice. <laughs> and <laughs> then a couple months later, I moved to Washington DC for this position. I had sold my drag, gave it away to the Greg, grandchildren and children back in Missouri. Didn't think I'd really do it again because of, I mean, there's tons of Queens in DC. Um, but an, one individual found out that I had done drag previously. Uh, and it became kind of a personal mission that she was going to put me back in the heel. And once I was back in a gown and I was like, okay, we're going to do this. So I need to figure out what's going to be my shtick. And I, there wasn't anyone really doing big hair back then. And so that's what I decided for me, it was going to be big hair, um, which I have a cultural tie to having been raised in northern Missouri, which is the southern part of Missouri culturally. Um, so big hair was kind of the same thing as in Texas, big hair. Uh, I was, and from that, then decided, OK, uh, well, if we're going to do it, let's just jump full throttle into it. Um, at that point I was a member of the Academy. I didn't know about the court at that point. Um, the court actually was just founding at that stage of the game. Um, then I learned of the court became a member of it as well. Um, and the rest is history and much of it is in the film. I love hearing about, uh, all these, uh, communities across the country. I live in Long Beach and I live just like two blocks away from, uh, uh, from a bar that does drag shows. I think pretty much almost every night. Uh, hamburger Marys. Yeah, uh, some people. We had a we had a guest from England who had been to the West Hollywood place. I'm like, oh, you've heard <laughs> small, small, small world. But uh, it it is always I always try to um, from my perspective as somebody who you always hear uh, you know you're the first transgender person I've ever met, and I imagine there was a point in time when you were a lot of people's first drag queen they'd met, and then uh, f- for me to to I, I I try not to take for granted, but uh, I guess inevitably just the the idea that I can walk down the street and I see a drag queen or a trans person and it's really not out of the ordinary. It's pretty pretty commonplace, but uh, it's just important to think about that not everybody has that luxury. Mia Farrow is one of my favorite Long Beach queens. I'll have to check that out. We you see, I, neither my partner nor I drink very much, so we almost we we don't really uh, we don't go out as much as we should. But She's that's, fabulous. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to check that out. And I think um can you talk a little bit cuz I guess a question that I get asked a lot by people who watch uh RuPaul's Drag Race on TV or are just interested in 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 drag culture but uh 
I, I, simplest way I guess I could ask this is just why drag? Why is that such a mainstay of, of LGBTQ culture? I mean, I think, you know, it's not a coincidence that it, you know, it was drag queens and Leatherman, uh, also, uh, notably in our current point in time, um, largely of color, um, that were what launched the modern uh, gay rights movement at Stonewall in 1969, June 28th to 1969. Um, those were mainly um, uh, drag queens and trans women of color, along with Leatherman uh, leading those riots um, to stand for equality. Um, and I think it's this sheer fact of... Um, Lots of color, lots of rhinestones, lots of feathers helps draw attention. Um, and if you can draw attention and get someone thinking about something that's going to be an exciting entertainment possible value, I think that sometimes um, dampens the um, potential m- discomfort that the individual might have around being around someone that's gay or lesbian or transsexual, uh, you know, transgender, uh, etc. And you're able to then get them to drop the walls just for a minute and then be able to see another side. And then when you're able to then present the fact that, um, you know, I think that's part of what's so important about being out as a drag queen and then also being out in the same community out of face so that they see you in both cases and know that, uh, Hey, you're their friend down the street. You're their coworker. Um, that's what helped us move along the way throughout many of the advancements in the equality movement is to be able to see each other as another human being and not an other. I think that's uh, one, and this is kind of going off track, but it, with respect to I, a question I hear asked sometimes is, what does cisgender mean? Um, and of course, cis comes from the Latin root, and it's, in order to means the same. Uh, and what's so important is without that, we're saying that our transgender brothers and sisters are an other. Right. There needs to be, they can't be, if you place someone in an quote unquote other category by virtue of doing that, you're demeaning them. You're making them something less than, less than normal. And we all are, I hate the word normal, but we all are, unique individuals who need to be respected for our uniqueness in society and not no one ever be treated as an other. Right. Uh, we'd see a lot, uh, the, the fight for trans equality over, uh, across the pond in the UK is often very, very vicious. Although I, for, for people listening, that's probably not so much of a surprise if you saw that the, there's this, uh, person who wrote a series of books you might have heard about them uh, harry potter that oh uh, yeah yeah she yeah she, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah that's uh yeah we, we have not done we have not done an episode on that yeah I, I we did we have done an episode on jk rowling and her shoving of of dumbledore in, into closets out of closets i mean that's uh to build off a, a topic that we've been talking about on the podcast josh you could probably provide a lot of uh analysis on this this subject but but the, the lgbtq uh representation on screen particularly trans representation uh i guess you could have drag representation included in that uh 
doesn't doesn't necessarily have a have a great great track record, and yet it's something that uh, we as a society are really actively uh, working on. Right. It seems like it's it's getting better, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I saw your tweet about um, uh, the the Jim Carrey movie. I you know as a as a kid you see that and you don't it you don't think about it but as you grow older i mean it's it's horrible uh yeah with it it's ventura yeah i couldn't remember the name off the top of my head when you go ahead mavi i think also there's just like there's like i said with there being so much power in words when you add visuals to words that makes it even much more powerful i mean the when you look at for instance Yes, I watch RuPaul's Drag Race. I think it's something that's had both its blessings and its curses for the LGBTQ community. It has exposed um, drag and LGBTQ individuals to a group of individuals that probably otherwise wouldn't have viewed us. Um, um, That being said, I don't know that it's always been that they've been doing this for positive reasons. Um, but also we got to realize that RuPaul's drag race is also a, um, reality show. And as such, the editing is done purposefully to make people either look really good or look really hateful. Right. And that's not what you necessarily see in the person, um, knowing some of these Queens, um, that are on there. Um, and I, you know, as a, a kind of a black and white kind of comparison, two shows that currently are running that both have Juju B on them. One is, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, um, All Stars 5. And then you have at the same time on TLC, um, the show Dragnificent, where she and BB Bahar's, BB Bahar's, BB Zahara Benet, if I can get my mouth to work right, um, along with, um, two others that I'm dr- struggling to remember who it is, Alexis Michelle and Thorgy Thor, um, do essentially the straight eye for the gay guy version of assisting women um, either get ready for a wedding or for a big event. And they overdo their fashion and their makeup and help with the whole nine yards. And Juju B in that show is so much more like the Juju B I know. She really is where Jujubee sometimes gets cut to be somewhat um, with a overly sharp edge in drag race um, just for the game of what you do in editing to create attraction. Um, and so I think being aware of all of those things on balance, probably yes, RuPaul's drag race has been probably a good thing for, uh, for the LGBT community, but it's had some negatives too. Um, and I think we got to what's really important is to remember those drag queens that are in your community that also give back to your community and give back to those bars that have been out on the streets for these restaurants that have been closed, trying to raise money for the waiters and the bar owners to keep them open. Um, you know, there's uh, brothers and sisters of mine across the country that are doing that stuff. And that's the kind of work that we should be celebrating rather than some of the stuff that I think we sometimes see on TV. One of the some of the feedback that I got from the the documentary was that it didn't show the raunch of drag, but that's not really what the court and what the academy did. I mean, there was a real elegance to what you guys 
do that you don't you don't see that in RuPaul's Drag Race and some of the other portrayals of drag on, right. on I mean, TV. I definitely have some numbers that I do that are certainly not going to be right. highly of recommended course. for Eoni when she turns three. <laughs> um, right. But, uh, you know, that being said, um, for me, I, drag is not something that I align with Ranch. I mean, if I, the fetish community, which I also fully identify with, you know, we're, bring out my leather brothers and sisters. Um, that being said, um, I don't see where drag is not raunch. Drag is about entertainment. It's about having a way to express oneself. Um, it's something that can be utilized to pay bills. It's something that can be utilized to raise money for charity. And it's more than anything, all of us, no matter what you're using it for, it's something to bring us together as a community. And for a place like D.C., where especially uh, with with Republican administrations, I imagine uh, when, when when those appointees go out and they're looking for a, a night on the town, I think there's a, a great um, likelihood that that um, when you're performing, you are entertaining people who that's their first experience with drag or they're coming from more more conservative uh, paths. And I, I, I guess. Not that you should tailor your show to to uh, please uh, Trump appointees, but <laughs> but the, there I, I, there is a there is a, a sort of sense of, of of being aware of who your audience is when you're making that that kind of stuff. Absolutely, I mean, I, I, I back in um, early March before the shutdown um, of everything, um, I did a show out in um, Southern Maryland where it's extremely conservative there. Um, and I, you know, when I was going through the numbers to do that night, I purposely picked a couple numbers that, um, or didn't pick a couple numbers, I should say that I would have, that I turned right around the next night at another location and did, um, you know, I've got a great parody that makes fun of Donald Trump, but I wasn't going to do that number there because I was trying to raise money for a charity in that County. And I wanted to do numbers that I thought would get people to open out their wallets and give me fives, tens and twenties and not nickels and dimes. And Josh, in in crafting this narrative, um, you know, there's always these are uh, valuable histories for the LGBTQ community. But but as a filmmaker and something that I'm aware of as as a podcaster and a critic is, uh, you know, you're 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 bound to just by token of the fact that we we only make up a you know small percentage of the U.S. population and the world population. You are making something that that is uh, going to be viewed by uh, cisgender heterosexual people and, and also, um, you know, it's going to be enjoyed by them and, and, and crafting a narrative that, that, that is sort of, uh, open and welcoming, I guess would especially be a challenge just by, uh, talking to the fact that you're also trying to condense a year's worth of footage into a hour and a half long, long feature. Sure. Well, you know, I'm a journalist, uh, I come from a TV news background, so I'm used to taking stories and turning them around in, into really short minute 15 stories. So giving, given an hour and a half, an hour and 20 minutes, um, you know, that gave me a, a bunch of tools to work with. Um, and, you know, you really have to think through when you're shooting and pre-production and all that kind of stuff, who your audience is going to be. Anytime you approach anybody for funding, they're going to ask you who your audience is. And, 
you'd love, I'd, I'd love to say this, this documentary is for everybody, but I know, I know, you know, somebody, uh, a super conservative person may not, may not want to watch this and I'm, that's okay. That's the documentary isn't really for them, although I'd love them to watch it and learn the amazing things that, that Muffy and the, the court, um, Maybe they do. I bet they could get some laughter, love, and light out of it, though. I bet they could too. But, um, but you know, I in making the, the film, my audience was I was thinking about people who were LGBTQ allies, um, somebody who might seek out a documentary on Netflix, a fan of of similar documentaries like Paris is Burning and and um, I'm Divine and and that kind of stuff. I I think I personally think. Anybody could watch this and get something out of it, but if I was really to focus down who the who my audience intended audience was, um, and, and you know another thing is even if you're an LGBTQ ally, you probably have never heard of you may not have heard of the court, and so you're going to get a lot out of this, and you may not know about the the history of drag in Washington D.C. So um, you know I I certainly when I when I started out and I started doing my research, I didn't I didn't know. Uh, the history of drag in DC, and I I only knew the court through what what Muffy had had told me. So um, I think anybody could get something out of it, um, but you do have to kind of craft it and understand who your audience is is going to be. Another thing I like about the documentary is so it, it reminded me a lot of in the I'd seen it I'd seen yours back in January, but um, there was one that came out on Netflix that I reviewed. I think like six weeks or so called uh, circuits of books. And it was about a, uh, a bookstore that catered to LGBTQ people that recently closed, but um, it was a, made me think of a, a, a genre that I, I guess we call it an emerging genre that your film also falls in, which is sort of a, the, we haven't had many sort of slice of life stories, about the LGBTQ community. A lot of it is focusing on the macro, the Stonewall riots or the AIDS epidemic or a lot of the big the big things that are obviously, you know, major and important stuff, but we're we're such a diverse and and big community. There's so many who knows how many other letters will get added to the alphabet by next year of of LGBTQ. Um, but uh it's 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 <laughs> important to think about how you know you you're you're crafting something that that is is representing you're you're telling a a narrative that is um telling a small part of an already underrepresented community especially in in film and and media i think with any documentary it has to be focused um unless unless you're Ken Burns and you get, you know, the opportunity to do a huge civil war documentary, um, <laughs> 80 minutes really isn't, isn't that long. So you really do have to have to focus. And so, you know, with, with any, with any documentary or really like any news story, what I, what I tell my broadcast students is the, the people that you interview, the kind of, I hate the word characters, um, but the characters in your film, um, or your even minute 15 news story, that's what people are going to remember. So if you're trying to get facts across or information across, the way that they're going to remember it is um, is through the eyes of the people you're interviewing. Um, and so I think, you know, slice of life is a really important 
um, tool for documentary filmmakers. And it makes me feel really good that, that you kind of put us in, in that category. And I haven't watched Circus of Books yet, but it's in my queue and I've heard it's really good. Yeah, it's it's important to, uh, you know, because you, 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 Muffy, you talked about it earlier, just the, the way that, that it's important not only to see drag queens out, but then to also see them uh, not in makeup. And you, you understand that, that the person, the character you see on the stage is a member of, is a member of your community who is helping the, the small businesses. And uh, I mean, we're, we're in the middle of a Absolutely. pandemic, which uh, is, is I, I think a lot about uh, LGBTQ people, uh, LGBTQ youth who uh, have found community in their mm-hmm. own areas and now uh, are cut off. Oftentimes, you know, college is such a great time for people to explore and to uh, come into their own skin. And uh, for all these people, they're, they're it's kind of like literally back in the closet, back at home, back in their bedrooms. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, to be particularly that you know, if they've got a, if the home life is not good, and they now are forced back into it for the sake of economic and physical survival, um, you know, those individuals are going to even more need a support network. And I think that's where you know every single community um, look, has got those hidden gems. Um, and we've got to celebrate the pieces that make us to get, you know, the, the broader community. I know from just in the course of the past five years, we've had a number of bars that have closed in DC and we've seen the, the pandemic, uh, close two of our largest in DC now in the last two months, um, that we know are not going to reopen. Uh, so that adds additional challenges as we have fewer and fewer places. I think that's one of the it's another blessing and curse that LGBTQ life in general in DC has. Um, we're by and large a very progressive area, Arlington County, especially um, most of these Maryland suburbs, though not quite as progressive, probably um, though some are very progressive um, though that area creates the opportunity where you no longer necessarily have the necessity for there to be an LGBTQ bookstore or um, various LGBTQ restaurants. And they become to where um, normalcy is a great thing, in, uh, but it also can be a curse and that you've got to make sure that those individuals that have are owning those stores and supporting the community, that we continue to support them as well. Um, no one gets where they end up without the assistance of a lot of people along the way. And we got to celebrate all the individual pieces and parts and support the individual pieces and parts. Yeah. I think that's sort of when I, when I think about the, the generational uh, advances, I mean, no, I I think few people out there would argue that it's not better to be gay in 2020 than it would be in like 1980. And yet at the same time, uh, there's a lot of institutions that were, were centered around being places of community for the community, like uh, uh, bookstores or, or gay bars that um, as a result of uh, things like Tinder or Grindr that have made it easier and in some ways safer. You know, there's a part of Circus of Books where they talk about a, a place called Vaseline Alley where people would meet for, for casual hookups. I mean, it's probably uh, better that we have venues that aren't that for the community. And right. yet at the same time, as we, 
as time moves forward, we do uh, run the risk of, of losing places of, of culture that matter. And, you know, it's, it, it definitely is a, a interesting dynamic as you, as you put it. And I think that we all, there's the, rea- the reality as well, that the, the under 35 generation is a generation that is a generation of one-off doers, but not joiners of organizations as a general um, and casting generality sometimes can be a, a bad thing to do. But I think as a general rule, those under 35 don't necessarily join organizations. And sometimes I, don't, I think also don't see the value in organizations that are advocating for things that they're a part of. Um, and even with the victory on uh, with now having Title VII on our side, you know, the reality is there's still a long ways to go. Um, and, um, you know, the fight for equality is not done. So we do still need LGBTQ organizations. We still need LGBTQ communities to celebrate their component parts, whether that be theaters, bookstores, restaurants, um, all kinds of stores. Um, so, you know, it, it really is about celebrating our diversity um, and supporting each other within it. One of the uh, w- one of my I'm a huge uh, baseball fan, so I was a little saddened. Well, actually, so my my family I'm half Canadian uh, holds no love for the Washington Nationals since they were the the Expos uh, <laughs> throughout this World Series. Who was putting uh, multiple Expos hats that I was putting on stuffed animals thing. Did eight drag in Washington. I'm actually an Orioles fan, so I'm I'm okay with that. You know, I actually was born in Baltimore. My dad grew really? up. Really? Both my parents went to Loyola, Maryland. Um, I, I didn't live there for very long, but uh, my dad had a lot of love for the Orioles, who are are in kind of a mess, but uh, lovable mess. Yeah, and the the <laughs> the Washington D.C. drag community has some bones to pick with the Nationals as well. Um, you think in the? Uh, yeah, the Washington Nationals are definitely the baseball team that ate drag in Washington. Uh, the area that used to be um, one of the drag central areas, half an O Street back in the day, um, that had a number of bars that were some of the uh, um, more frequented drag bars, um, was clo- was closed in order to build the modern-day Washington National Stadium. Uh, and one of those bars then moved across the street a few years later, a couple years later, um, and it's now gone out of business, um, because right across the street from it, it, they've now built a new soccer stadium. So stadiums tend to, to have a something out for dragon <laughs> DC. Uh, they couldn't have, they couldn't have taken uh, the old RFK stadium and just made that like a big drag <laughs> stadium. That would have, uh, could have, could have been an olive brand. You, you know, I, that I, it's still there. So maybe we should send something to mayor Bowser and maybe she can, uh, find some extra cans of yellow paint. We can paint uh, some big signs and have a, a fundraiser in the middle. It also uh, killed the rave scene in D.C. too. One of the biggest rave clubs on the East Coast was right around that same place, and they tore that down uh, as well when they were when they were building the stadium. So, as 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 we head into the the home stretch and and wrap up, uh, I want to ask another question about the film. But before I get to that, I Kind of a big, I, I like to, when we have uh, people on from uh, 
many generations of the LGBTQ community. Uh, I just wanted to to ask you kind of a, a, a broad question. What's what's kind of one thing that you would like the uh, younger generation that's coming up with uh, to to know about LGBTQ history and and. I think the film really provides a, a great overview of, of stuff that we, we really can't forget. It's important. This is our history. This is our uh, culture and our family. Yeah, I think just like the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement of the 60s um, would not have happened without some uh, without people like Martin Luther King Jr. and many others by his side. Um, yeah, I think uh, uh, Congressman Lewis, um, all of the people at Selma, um, the uh, Pettus Bridge, etc. Um, the gay rights movement also had lots of individuals that um, I think we can learn a lot from what they did, uh, and that they did selfless acts in order to advance the community that they lived in. Um, and it's people like Jose Saria. It's people like Frank Kameny. It's people like Mame Dennis, uh, the uh, individuals across the country who uh, took a stand um, and took real big risk um, in order to um, make change that we wouldn't have been able to have gotten to where we've gotten today without those individuals stepping outside of the comfort lines and saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, So when it comes to um, Jose Saria, uh, who was in the army in World War II and came back, uh, re- was arrested for a morals charge in California. What Jose really wanted to do was be a school teacher, but she realized that once that morals charge was uh, on her, uh, convicted, that she couldn't be a school teacher in California at that time. And so activism um, became um, the basis of her life. Um, to make sure that we could begin to tear down those walls and being able to expose that we were there fighting for our communities was the way to ensure that the LGBT community could begin that path towards equality. Um, At the same time, having in New York City people like Tree, um, who was a bartender the night, um, and there that night of the Stonewall Riots on June 28th of 1969, who is a former emperor of um, the New York court. He reigned in New York the year after I reigned in D.C. Um, People like that and hearing their stories, what they did, um, the various things, like I said, of Frank Kameny as well in D.C., um, what he did with respect to working to make sure that OPM um, tore down some of those um, discriminatory rules uh, against individuals in the federal workforce. And then also he was part of also fighting amongst with many to make sure that the APA finally took um, homosexuality out of the APA handbook. You know, it's people that did those kinds of steps. Um, we're literally standing on the shoulders of those who built the sidewalk for us. And um, it's important to honor that history. But in order to honor the history, you have to first know the history. I think that's a, a great way of putting it. And I could I couldn't agree more. We we have a responsibility to to remember the people who came before us, especially with um all the the carnage that that the AIDS crisis wreaked on our community. You know, a lot of people were were taken too soon and it's it's important to remember that. Uh and and Josh, a uh, question for you. Uh 
What do you think the um, so the the film had its premiere at Slamdance uh, back in January? It has its uh, wider film uh, video on demand uh, premiere on Saturday, and um, so having having premiered it, what's the what's the thing you've you've learned? What's one thing you've learned since uh, the premiere, and one thing that you would uh, like people to take away from the film as they get a chance to see it? Well, that's a tough one, but. Yeah, takeaway. <laughs> yeah. um, so takeaway, I would absolutely um, love for everybody to take away just the amazing work that Muffy and the court um, that they all do in the community. And um, what amazes me is just uh, the fact that they can take something like drag and an expression of art and use it to raise money and really change lives. I mean, Muffy, you raised, you said it was actually more than $60,000 in the end, but you raised so much money and did so much good in the community. And I'm, I just kind of hope that we're able to show even like a a slice of that. Um, so that would be the the takeaway. Um, I think one thing that, that I've learned is, uh, if, if there's something that you want to do and you think you can do it, just do it. I mean, I, I've, I always wanted to make a documentary. Um, I've loved documentaries, uh, since college. Um, I don't have a, a documentary background. I've got a broadcast TV background. Um, but between my students and Muffy kind of keep, they, they kept pushing me along and I, I, I learned how to do a documentary as I went and my students learned, learned with me. Um, I had never made a documentary before. I'd, I'd done some documentary shorts. I knew I knew how to shoot and edit, and I had a reporting background. Um, but if you've got something that you want to do, just my recommendation is: don't wait for anybody. Just do it. Do it yourself. And the one thing I would just add is, aside from that, and thank you for those kind words, Josh. My hope is. It's the same hope with any show, but it's a bigger hope with this with this film. If someone that watches this movie um, decides to no longer end their life, if they were, God forbid, considering suicide, having been there, um, then praise the Lord. But even less than that, if we just have someone who sees this and goes, you know what, there's something that I can do to give back to my community in a greater way. Because I promise you, when you do something to give back, you get rewards that are far more given back to you in the end. Um, so that alone, if I can just have w- one of those things happen from this in some form or fashion, then my life's set. I think that's uh, really moving. And uh, I, I, it's it's been so great to talk to you both. I remember I was just thinking about how, before we started recording, about... Uh, I'd be in line for, for various films in Utah and people would say that, you know, they'd ask cause I, I'd seen most of the slam dance slate. I'd used it as a way to, uh, get, get prepared for the, I mean, it, it takes work to sit and watch for, for yeah, some people. It, it, it seems like a dream to just sit and, uh, watch movies all day, but you've got to like get yourself around. You have to try to eat and there's park cities, not, not built to handle all tens of thousands of people. There's nowhere to get food. <laughs> and I'd have to write articles in between films, no sleep. I was having to dilate for a long time uh, in, in what, what spare time I actually had. And I would talk and I would explain 
Queen of the Capital. And I'd say, you know, this is a really touching film about a, a, a sec- section of the community that you, you don't, that isn't, isn't reflected in something like uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, or if, even if you just follow gay people on Twitter, you know, you don't, you don't get to hear the depths of the stories that um, you were able to, to share in the film. And I, I think, I think for that, for many reasons, but, but also for that reason of, of why it's important and why people should see it. Thank you. That means a lot. I, thank you. Uh, you know, thank you for having us and thank you for all the support. I mean, the, the review was amazing. Absolutely. Hey, thank you. Um, so you want to tell us uh, what, what's next for you both and uh, where we can find the film? Sure. Muffy, you want to go first? Sure. Um, for me, uh, next is continuing. Since the film was uh, uh, finished, I got a promotion at work, so I'm now a supervisor. Um, and I work in unemployment insurance still. So with the economy like it is, um, it is every day going 99 miles an hour trying to make sure we can get the um, workforce the things they need to provide unemployment insurance to the people out in the country. Um, hopefully, it's right. the hardest working person in Washington right now, probably. Well, I don't think the hardest, but I, I certainly think I, I'm certainly one of. Uh, but we're going to. Uh, I've, I've built up lots of leaves, so hopefully eventually we'll be able to have some travel time. I'd love to go over to Europe, so um, that's my, uh, that's on my list. Um, but otherwise, continuing to do drag here locally to um, raise money for charities, and it'll be nice to be able to get back to be able to see some of my sisters on the circuit as well. And we are kind of frozen in pre-production on the next documentary right now. Um, but we are going to be following um, a couple of inner-city Baltimore boys who are studying to become professional ballet dancers. Um, they go to a prestigious ballet school in Baltimore, and ballet is uh, basically a chance at a, a better life than, than you know, uh, what they have in the city. Well, that sounds fascinating. I love going to the ballet. Hopefully, uh, once this blows over, we'll, we'll be able to go to film festivals again. We'll be able to go out. We'll be yes. able to see people yeah. again. Uh, that's uh, definitely. I'll look forward to that with uh, with great interest. And um, I'll link to I'll link to the uh, film page or social media and. Um, all of that. The film comes out on uh, Saturday. Is June June twentieth, right? Yes, that is my grandfather's 80, 80th birthday. And, oh wow! Uh, yeah, that's uh, he's actually he's grown a lot into a big uh, LGBTQ ally. So that's, that's um, great, great timing. So awesome. I wish you both uh, the best of luck with the film. I recommend everybody see it. It's it's really it's a lot of fun. And uh, thank you, thank bo- you, thank you both so much for coming on. Thank you, and to you, the Thanks audience. For having uh, thank you so much for listening. Go see Queen of the Capital, and we will see you next time. 